0: Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-one. Singularity One-on-one is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always I will be the man with the questions. Today I am privileged to have Charlie Strauss as my guest on the show. Charlie is a very well-known science fiction author and the writer of one of my favorite science fiction books titled Accelerando. And as far as the book is concerned, I can say that I have rarely read a book with such a broad plot horizon, spanning time and space across the whole of the universe, with such a dazzling imagination, supported by the latest and greatest bleeding edge of science and science fiction, and with such deep implications for the whole of humanity. So I'm terribly excited to, to welcome Charlie to our show today. Hi, Charlie, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One.
1: Hi, I'm pleased to be with you.
0: Excellent. So let's jump right into the questions here. And perhaps we should start at the very beginning. Um, and if you don't mind sharing with us about how did you get interested originally in science fiction in general and in writing science fiction in particular?
1: That's a hard question. Um, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't reading science fiction. For that, you'd actually have to go back to before I was reading. Um, I do remember draining the science fiction collection of my local library when I was uh, four or five years old and buying my own collection of my own copy of Lord of the Rings when I was about 10. So I've been reading science fiction for ages. I think I began trying to write it when I was about nine or 10 as well um and tried writing my first novel when i was 14 so you know it goes back a long way i'm a good bit older now um nearly a third of a century later if i'd known how hard it would be to (laughs) succeed in getting published i probably wouldn't have started i'd have picked something easier like brain surgery (laughs) (laughs) you know just 12 years of training
0: (laughs) well that that that's a really good joke but at the same time on the background of your work uh, in books such as Accelerando I I can totally agree with you that in some sense brain surgery could be at least as challenging as writing such a you know profound book Um, so so in that case what is the motivation and or is there an overarching overarching motivation behind your work is it just curiosity interest Uh, sort of uh, Um, making ends meet, or what would it be?
1: Well, I should add that these days I write for a living because it is my day job um, and has been for pretty much exclusively for the past six years. Um, And I've been writing for a living for most of the past 20 years in one form or another. Uh, But it's not a it's not a very well paid day job let's put it that way nobody goes into writing science fiction planning on getting rich um, a few people succeed against the odds but in general you know if you want to get rich become an accountant or a lawyer <laughs> um The reason I stay at it is because I can support myself, and it's something I enjoy doing. It gives me a chance to, I guess, indulge my curiosity, indulge my sense of play, I guess, and to keep coming up with new ideas and doing something which I practiced as a hobby for 20 years first.
0: And so, in that sense, then, how do you see Charlie Strauss? I mean, are you a storyteller? Who sort of invents or creates those stories for entertainment, um, or is there a general moral or, or a message that you wanna carry through your work, um, or are you a futurist who wants to uh, show us and, and bring sort of down a future to to your readers that they should consider and the implications thereof, or all of the above?
1: All of the above fits better. Um, Also, I enjoy telling jokes, and um, I think you'll find a few of them in my work. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. But uh, above all, I get bored easily. I've got a a shortish attention span, um, made worse by the Internet. Uh, I like to poke my nose into new ideas and new fields, and then move on and do something else periodically. Um, This line of work actually lets me indulge in my worst instincts. (laughs) And people pay me for it.
0: <laughs> oh, perhaps that's why Cory Doctorow, in one of his podcasts said that Charlie Strauss has an evil mind.
1: <laughs> oh, I like to think so.
0: <laughs> he was sharing with his audience about how you guys are working on uh, Rapture of the Nerds and so on. And
1: Yeah, we're uh, squabbling over it at present and we're a bit over halfway through the uh, first draft. So that should be out next summer. Oh, I'm looking um,
0: I'm looking forward to it. Yeah.
1: Basically, it goes back, I think, to about 2003 where, um, you know, we were chatting an email and I said, well, how about trying a collaboration? He said, well, OK, let's go for it. And I had this sort of first two or three pages of a short story that I hadn't actually been able to do anything with. Guy wakes up after a party lying in a bathtub and finds there's a biohazard trefoil on his arm. Um so I threw it at Cory, who added a thousand words and um threw it back at me and uh, we sort of did it that way. Playing tennis with a story in thousand-word long chunks, you know, write your way out of this bit, you bastard, each time. <laughs> and um to our shock, we sold it to sci-fi.com, if I remember correctly. No, um or was it? Sorry, I'm trying to remember the order of a short of a story sale eight years ago. Um, Anyway, it did sell, and then, much to our surprise, uh, we had a request from an editor to write a sequel, another novella, so we continued with the story. And then, um, and this is the really surprising bit, Tor decided they wanted to buy the book. Now, they actually made us an offer for... well, said we would like to buy the book-length expansion of Rapture of the Nerds. You know, you've got two novellas, write us another big one and do it as a fix-up. About four or five years ago now, um, and about every year I'd sort of email Corrie and say, well, you know, do you have any free time this year? How about it? And uh, Corrie would say, no, nope, sorry, I'm busy. How about you? And, you know, I had to admit, I was busy as well, until sort of um, last year, on April the 1st, Locus, which is the trade magazine for SF writers and reviewers and people who work in the biz, they like to run April Fool's jokes every year, and you know this year of a big April Fool. Jo- Last year of a big April Fool joke was Doctor Doctorow signed for seven-digit book advance to write the authorized sequel I to love *The Shrugged.
0: Uh, that was hilarious. I could the first. So, and can you believe it? I did not get. I didn't get the joke the first three or four lines. I was shocked, and and
1: oh yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I emailed Corey and said, well, how about it? And he said, well, funnily enough, I have some free time coming up. <laughs> so at this point, we decided we had to do it. Well, not the authorized sequel to Atlas Shrugged, but the authorized sequel to Rapture of the Nerds, parts one and two.
0: Yes, uh, I agree. That's, that's the better idea for sure, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but let me ask you this. Um, I recently interviewed Werner Vingy, and as mm-hmm. a result of that interview... I have a, several question, uh, to, questions towards you. But uh, one of the things that I noticed with him is that um, his take on writing was making sense of the universe. If, Because if, I asked him, is there an overarching theme or something that spans through all your work? And his answer was, well, I'm kind of trying to make sense of the universe and, and where are we heading with my work and, and sort of bring this understanding to myself but also to others hopefully so let me ask you is there any such motive or element in your work
1: there's something similar but different um making sense of the universe is a pretty broad thing to go for i view it more as exploring the human condition now You know, mainstream literary realist fiction of the past century is all about the human condition, um, stereotypically about a novelist struggling with a midlife crisis and a novel that he can't work on while having an affair somewhere in um, the academic district of his home city to play with a ghastly stereotype. Um, I view the human condition somewhat more broadly. Um, The job of fiction is to come up with plausible lies about how human behaviour would work under imaginary conditions. Um, Setting aside the hyper-realist modernist literary novel, for example, historical fiction, um, it's an exploration of a human condition in other civilizations in the past. Um, Sans-fiction, it's the exploration of how we might behave if new technologies or new laws of nature were discovered under circumstances which are plausible but which don't actually apply. fantasy fiction you draw it a bit more widely you're uh, studying the human condition but you're either using allegory or metaphor or literal magic Um, you know how humans would behave under that I find the latter is slightly less useful as a tool for exploring humanity but uh, the former certainly it's all about the human condition because after all we're human we perceive the universe through the the filter of our own senses
0: Mm -hmm. so yeah, in that sense, let me ask you this then, um, the human condition has been more or less constant for the last, I don't know, 10, 20, 30,000 years, maybe since, you know, the the time of the Chromagnon. We haven't changed that much, and yet… Ah, I
1: disagree. You disagree. Um, okay, go there ahead. There is some recent research in genetics that suggests that human evolution is proceeding quite rapidly. Um, If I remember correctly, the genes for, for example, digesting um, lactose, the main sugar in milk, without which you, you are not, you're not able to digest milk products such as cheese, um, only really began to spread a couple of thousand years ago. Um, There are other examples, numerous examples of, I guess, microevolution within the human framework. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's going with genetic determinism as well to an extent that I don't really hold with. The idea that genes determine our behavior is pretty tenuous, mm-hmm. and you don't have to be Richard Dawkins discussing the extended phenotype to knock it down and suggest that we are very much a platform that horizontally transferable memes, um, complexes of, of behavioral patterns spread across... So, you know, I view the human condition a bit more broadly than just our genetics or our physiology. Um, Arguably, the whole of the epiphenomenon of our civilization is part of a human condition. Mm
0: -hmm. But, okay, so let me... um, I I also recently interviewed Max Moore, who is the the CEO of the Alcor Foundation. And he, for example, uh, abides by the paleo diet. And according to people who follow the paleo diet, you know, most of us don't have the lactose uh, enzyme to digest uh, milk and dairy products. Um, I mean, I, I personally recently did a 23andMe DNA test, and I do have uh, the, the lactose enzyme uh, according to that test. Um, but, but my point was a little bit different, so let me see if I can uh, state it better. More or less, the human condition has always been related to the issue of death and survival in in some way and or trying to find out who we are as a species and and quite often uh, the answer that we come at different types and in different places to that question is highly related perhaps with our biology so in a sense if we are able to start having Artificial enhancements of our biology or even move a step higher and away arguably from biology um, Then in that sense we will be transcending our current human condition and going into a new realm so in that sense How would that and how has that? Potentiality impacted on your view and on your work trying to address the human condition in different circumstances
1: I'm not convinced. Um, sometimes I think it's a good idea. Other times I'm not at all sure of it or of or its plausibility. Mm-hmm. Part of a problem, for example, is you take a human being who's lost a limb. You fit them with an artificial limb. They're still a human being. Um, to actually start thinking in terms of really changing the human condition, we're going to actually have to mess with our brains. And that's actually a fairly fraught area to get into um, when i was a, when i was a, not a teenager early 20s and first read neuromancer by william gibson you know i wanted to be the first kid on my block to get a cyberspace jack implanted in my skull took me about another 10 years to realize no i wanted to be the first guy to have a firewall implanted <laughs> these days add a spam filter on top
0: <laughs> absolutely
1: um, but i'm not convinced that you can actually migrate a human consciousness out of meat, or um, reasonably enhance a human being by directly plugging machines or extensions in. I'm not sure about that at all.
0: What about uh, the Aubrey de Grey way, say, skip the uploading of the human brain, but accomplishing immortality, or even if what he calls longevity escape velocity? A moment in which every 10 years we'll we'll be able to move death or uh, life expectancy by another 10 years.
1: I'd sign up for that in a shot.
0: So wouldn't that change the human condition?
1: Yes, it will. And I'd like to tiptoe around that question because it's my plans for the um, third novel that I've still got to do on my stack, which I won't be starting until uh, the earliest this time next year. (laughs) I'm still making notes for it
0: excellent that's one of the, the issues I'll bring back towards the end of our interview um, but perhaps now is the time to come to the meat of the questions here or one of the most interesting questions that I've been dying to ask you now Accelerando is when I read Accelerando it was a profound book to me probably I did it probably five or six years ago and it really impressed me um, to the degree that it's in a way responsible for me starting Singularity Weblog. Thus, I was very surprised to say the list when in your first original email you shared with me the following. Please don't forget that I wrote this book a few years ago and lately I'm more of a Singularity skeptic than I was when I wrote the book. Now both me and Werner Vinge are dying to find out why. What has changed in the last few years since you wrote that book?
1: Well, let's rewind a bit and see where the book's roots lie. Um, back around 1991 to 1993, I was fairly active on a mailing list, the Extropians mailing list. Mm-hmm. Um, not at its current home, but an earlier incarnation of it. Actually, that's where I first ran across Ken McLeod. We were both on the mailing list at the same time, um, sometime before I actually met him physically and after I'd moved to Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I was on it because it really gave me a sense of wonder kick for the idea load in SF, because an awful lot of science fictional structures have been sort of, appeared to have been stagnating since the mid to late 1980s. There wasn't visibly much progress in it until I ran across a different, I guess, a a parallel field in which people were speculating about the future in completely different terms. Mm -hmm. Now, let's hold with that. In 1989 to 1990, I decided I'd made a career blunder and went back to university to study computer science, which means I've got the equivalent of a 1932 aerospace engineering degree. (laughs) Um, In the 90s, I was working in the computer industry, and as one does, I ended up working for a web startup in 1995 then doing freelance work, and signing on with a dot .com in 1997 as their first programming hire. I was a contractor at a company called Datacash, a payment service company, which doesn't exist anymore because it achieved nirvana. It was taken over by MasterCard. Anyway, from 1997 onwards, I was writing software to basically handle the problem of interfacing web servers in the UK to the British banking system to process credit card transactions. And um, it works in a completely different way to the Visa and MasterCard network in North America. And um, we were having a spot of bother in 1998 to 1999 with growth during the first dot-com boom. We were experiencing 30% compound growth per month for nine consecutive months. I was the guy who was writing the servers that handled this workload, and um, <laughs> what had originally been written as a demo was sold out from under me by the CEO who wanted to sell a product, and the result was I was having to run like crazy to add features and patch bugs the whole time. Now, the Tim Berners-Lee, who pretty much invented the World Wide Web, quipped circa 1996 that the web experienced five years of development time for every 12 months on the wall clock. And he wasn't wrong. You, it felt like you were living through five um, um, a year every two and a half months. And um, I was driven pretty close to a nervous breakdown by the demands of just keeping up with this uh, by, because we were basically on the exponential upslope. The company went from, I think, initial seed corn capital of approximately £30,000 or about 50, US dollars to... A reverse takeover going public which with a valuation of roughly 36 million pounds in just under three years wow. which is a fairly scary growth rate to be in the middle of um i nearly cracked up under the pressure only um instead i wrote lobsters because it was sort of think it think in terms of an oyster you know it's got an irritant sand grain so it puts a layer of lacquer around it to uh, insulate itself. Lobsters was basically me trying to write a story to externalise my sense of, I guess, bewildered pace of change. And um, I sort of finished it in early 1999, um, in, in my copious spare time, sent it to a friend of mine who's these days, a com- well, a full-time computer journalist, was a computer journalist then. Um, he started out as the engineer who bolted together one of the UK's earlier ISPs. And, He read it and he said, Charlie, this is really great, but you'll never sell it. The audience would have had to have overdosed on Slashdot for six months before they understood it. (laughs) Uh, We both have Slashdot ID numbers in triple or early quadruple digits. (laughs) Um, And he was absolutely right. He just underestimated how many people would end up reading Slashdot. Now, at that time... I was trying to break into the American market with fiction because, fundamentally, if you want to make money writing science fiction, you go wherever money is, and that's the North American market. Sorry, I have a uh, critic.
0: Or the... The, um, the, 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 uh, how the intelligence that pulls the strings behind the curtain.
1: Clearly. <laughs> but clearly. let's not
0: reveal the end of the story here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um... I was trying to break into Asimov's SF magazine and sent Gardner Dozwar a copy of Lobster's and he bought it and published it. And the story sort of was left hanging at the end and it occurred to me that Manfred's story hadn't been finished there. So I began writing a second story said a few years later to deal with a messy divorce. And halfway through that story, I suddenly realized what I was trying to do or where I needed to go, because I was still in the uh, .com, in the process of IPOing at that point. And um, what I suddenly realized was there was a received wisdom around late 1999, early 2000, that it is impossible to write about the singularity itself. You can set stories after it, or you can write about the run-up to it, but you can't write through it. And I had this mad attack of hubris and thought, well, why don't I? <laughs> um, at which point I got this idea of a, triple, of a repeating triple structure, um, free acts, which is a classic staple of drama to begin with, three generations, each members of a post-human family, as it were, three different generations. They're so different, they might as well be members of different species. Each of them gets three stories to sort of show how things develop, and it shows the run-up to the moment of and the aftermath of a singularity. And the moment of singularity in Accelerando happens in the middle of i think it's the fifth story where there a bunch of people are sort of sitting in a pub having a debate over when the singularity happened and somebody said it happened in 1967 and somebody else says ooh 12000 bc and somebody else says oh 2018 somebody else said it hasn't happened yet and the joke is they're all sitting around in an upload environment on board a starship um, ...simultaneous with the singularity actually happening back home. There's a meta-framework around Accelerando that most people don't seem to get... Um, ...which is the role of Ainako, the cat. Aineko um, is not a cat. Aineko, if you're reading the book closely, changes sex from each sto- from each chapter... ...from one chapter to another. Changes body plan... Um, spends one chapter as a city rather than a cat. Aineko um, is not a cat. Ainako is actually a strongly su- superhuman AI who has discovered that humans are much easier to manipulate when you pose as a small furry glove puppet. Um, you know, human beings have a natural inclination to be afraid of big scary superhuman AIs. They're much less paranoid about cats.
0: What's the this name a of your cat, by the way?
1: Oh, this one is Frigg, after the Norse goddess.
0: We, so we're sure it's not Aineko? We're pretty a different sure.
1: <laughs> also, she's a real cat. I have to clean out the litter tray regularly enough to prove that one. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, by the end of Accelerando, the last story is basically about Aineko's theory of mind. Ainako um, has a theory of mind sufficiently strong to actually simulate an entire human consciousness accurately within it. The human beings we're dealing with, including our viewpoint characters, are actually simulations within Inaco's mind who are finally set free at the end. Um, in fact, there's some question as to whether the entire, all their memories are actually accurate. We have a serious unreliable narrator problem. Un- unreliable narrator problem in this novel, uh, which is something I had fun with in subsequent books.
0: OK, so so what happened after that to make you sceptical about the potentiality of the singularity as a, a high probability in our near or far off future then?
1: Well, bear in mind I was writing Accelerando between late 1998 and 2004. In the middle of that patch, Y2K happened. Now, looking around at the world around us, an awful lot of people set their sights on that particular triple zero year and it wasn't just the techies it wasn't just the geeks you'll also have noticed an amazing upwelling of religious fundamentalist millenarianism now it turns out that this isn't unique years with significant dates in them um, have an ability to fascinate and obsess human beings who should bloody well know better that these dating systems are entirely arbitrary. Happened in the year 1000, actually between the year 990 AD and um, roughly 1032 AD. There were these waves of religious believers wandering all over Europe, basically throwing away all their possessions, throwing away their, their clothing, having free love, convinced Jesus was coming to rescue them. And the rapture was, well, not the rapture, they hadn't, That particular belief structure is a new construct that came out of the late 19th, early 20th century, but convinced the second coming was about to descend on them. Move forward, and from the 1990s onwards, you have a similar wave of Christian millenarianist um, belief. Uh, We've still got it today. The uh, recent uh, announcement by an American preacher that the rapture was due on, was it May the the 18th or May the 22nd?
0: I think the name was Harold Campings, and I I think it
1: was the 21st. Yeah, he's revised his estimate. It's late in October now, but um, yeah. you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to bet it's not going to happen. <laughs> now, looking at the psychological roots of the whole thing, I'm inclined to ask to what extent is the post-humanist um, anticipation of a singularity um, a dangerous psychological blind spot where we're recycling the, Im- the apocalyptic imagery that is embedded at a very low level in the firmware of a civilization we live in. Because modern Western civilization and post-Enlightenment civilization and the scientific method all sprang, if you go back far enough, a couple of hundred, two, three hundred years, they came out of the Protestant Reformation. They came out of attempts to find a better way of relating to the world. And, you know, the whole idea of, Continual improvement of the human condition is something deeply rooted in Protestant religious faith. Now, that doesn't mean I'm ruling out any possibility of a singularity. It's just I think it's wise to be skeptical and be rather cautious in evaluating why you might believe in such a rupture in the human condition and how things could change so rapidly.
0: That's incredibly interesting. So, um, in that case, Let me bring in two of my other interviewees. Would you tend to agree more with Kevin Kelly, who says that uh, believers in the singularity commit thinkism, or with uh, Jerome Lanier, who thinks that a singularity is just like a new religion for geeks, just like the rapture of the nerds idea?
1: Um, I alternate between these two views. I try to be an agnostic on this issue. Um, my main feeling is that the idea of a hard takeoff singularity, of a rapidly self-bootstrapping transcendent AI, makes some naive assumptions about the nature of intelligence, um, of what intelligence is, and even how desirable it is. Another part of uh, the problem, as I see it, is the idea of mind uploading. Again, Hans Moravec's thought experiment in Mind Children in the late 1980s, the idea you replace one neuron after another in a brain until you've scooped out the whole brain without the human losing consciousness. That's a good model and a fairly interesting argument for why mind uploading might be possible. But um, first of all, we need to determine at what level of neuroanatomy, we need to simulate to get an accurate representation of a mind. Do we even need to go all the way down to the individual cellular level? Do we need to go lower? Do quantum effects have any influence? I tend to think Roger Penrose is talking out of his ass when he asserts that they do, but it is something we seriously need to examine. Um so the whole mind uploading thing is something that um In Jaron Alenia's terms, the nerds have jumped on as a new religion, the idea that we're all going to go flying up to upload heaven. Um, I think we should be very, very sceptical about the idea that the singularity, if it happens, will have any room for human beings in it. Mm -hmm. Um, My new novel, what comes out next month, titled Rule 34, um, among other things, has a bit of an examination of a particular type of artificial intelligence in it, one that I think is probably more likely than the self bootstrapping, self improving variety of a mind upload variety. Um, there is actually a scene in which somebody utters the dreaded words, Tell me, professor. Well, a cop who's asking a professor of artificial intelligence just how a particular piece of software works. Um, the talking head academic makes the point, uh, when designing an artificial intelligence, the one thing we don't want it to do is to be conscious. If we can emulate a human mind accurately in a computer, this isn't going to do any work for us. It's not going to be useful. It's going to want to sit by the swimming pool, sipping pina coladas and indulging in fantasies or watch Premier League football or something. It's not a very productive use of computing resources. Um, If we do actually... Learn enough about how consciousness works or how intelligence works or computer or how to write software that does what human minds do. The last thing we're going to want to do is to actually emulate a real human mind, um, unless we have an actual mechanism for mind upload for survival oriented reasons. Um, Again, here we're getting back to Aubrey de Grey. And, you know, I'm inclined to think it would be nicer to have indefinitely prolonged good health and youthful activity in our own bodies than to necessarily have to upload to escape a rotting meat sack as it were which is the alternative mechanism so whether we you know we may actually hit a point where we develop the capability to build artificial intelligences but we don't want to um for some reason this also keys in with for example the fermi paradox where one possible answer to it isn't that there's nothing, nobody out there, but that there is something we haven't anticipated that causes any species capable of going the interstellar colonization route to decide there's something better to do with their time instead.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in that case, how do you view, in that framework, uh, the work of people such as uh, Henry Markram's uh, Blue Brain Project or the the parallel work done by IBM, uh, who, according to their own timeline, uh, claim that by 2018 they would have a completely modelled uh, and fully operational simulation of, of, of a complete human brain?
1: Oh, I can certainly see it having an enormous amount of merit for research purposes. Um, if it can be done, we will do it eventually. What I would quibble with is the desirability of doing it for something other than actual pure research in uh, neurocomputing. You know, it's not necessarily something you can productize or make much use of other than as a research tool. I'd also add there are very serious ethical problems with simulating a human mind. Um, once you've got one running in a box, um, is it murder if you flick the off switch? <laughs>
0: um,
1: Greg Egan raised this point relatively recently yeah. about using genetic algorithms to evolve actual artificial intelligence. Um, He's pretty much recanted his earlier view but it was a good idea to use it as a shortcut by realizing that the penultimate stages you get to before you have your definite AI are arbitrarily close to being true AI. And every time you, you uh, do the recombination and respawn thing, you're basically rendering them extinct. Um, his view is that you're actually having to commit genocide to develop an artificial intelligence and that this is morally unacceptable.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let let me ask you then about Ray Kurzweil and his work. Um, He's often being criticized for being too optimistic, way too optimistic in both in his projections and in his take on the singularity and on on its effects on us. Um, You just mentioned a few minutes ago that you're not completely sure that there may be a space for our species after any potential singularity. So how would you rate our chances of survival um if there were to be a singularity after all
1: that's a good question um, I think it depends on the shape of the singularity and what where it originates and also um, how we end up interacting with it at the time um, leaving aside the singularity it's fairly clear that we face a number of very major existential challenges this century just getting through them Um We're confronting a period where petrochemicals are going to become increasingly difficult to get hold of, or rather more expensive, they're not going to run out, they're just going to get pricier to extract. Where we can't continue burning really dirty coal without messing with the climate badly. Um, We've just had a complete clusterfuck in Japan that has probably set back any hope of nuclear rollout by a decade at a minimum. Um, fusion is still 30 years away, and to make matters worse, it may remain 30 years away for a long time because, unfortunately, there are major drawbacks to fusion power that aren't widely publicised. For one thing, we can't do it without neutrons. Um, I'm not even going to get started on the whole lunar helium-free pipe dream. Basically, we have a real major emergency of a climatological nature. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a global free trade and capital flow system that appears to have become pathological. Um, a lot of people are very upset with the way things are going. We have a global rollout of a security state that's quite terrifying. And while all this is happening, several other things are going on. We are seeing the populations of China and India de- develop economically to first world standards of living in a single generation, and that's nearly three billion people. To put that in perspective, there's currently only one billion people in the developed world, in Europe, uh, North America, and bits of the Pacific Rim. Um, The environmental footprint of quadrupling the number of people in the developed world is pretty scary, but they're not going to stay down on the farm and poverty-stricken as peasants. They're just not going to accept that. Uh, Neither would we if we were in their shoes. And then there's Africa developing. This one is the dog that didn't bark. But while during the 1990s, Africa had underwent the third major war of the 20th century after the First and Second World Wars, the First and Second Congo Wars, overall, Africa is, a, is lots better off than it was 20 years ago. Africa as a continent has been experiencing roughly 6% economic growth per year for a decade. They're still very, very poor, but it's the poverty of Europe in the 1860s rather than Europe in the 1660s. Um, given another generation, Africa will be poised to make the same giant developmental leap forward as India and China. By 2050, we could well be looking at a world where we have eight or nine billion people expecting a developed world standard of living. Um, that's going to change a lot of things immensely. Um, The center of gravity of politics, the center of gravity of economic and technological development. Um, China is now producing more scientific papers than the United States or Europe, Um, and it's not going to stop there. What happens when Africa, with triple the population, well, with a bigger population than India, China and the US and Europe combined, starts actually producing on that scale? Um, there's no way of knowing where that one's going to end, but it's enormous, and I'd like to live long enough to see where these changes are taking us. Interestingly, there's a, another crisis that, that appears to have been defused. Um, during the 1970s, people were obsessed with a population time bomb, but every decade since then, The UN has been revising its estimates of peak human population down, and not in small increments, but by a billion a time. They're now looking at a peak human population of between 9 and 10 billion people by the end of the century, and then dropping thereafter. We could well be back to our current population level within a century if the death rate stays where it is today, although I don't think it will. Um, We have already passed peak children as opposed to peak oil, the birth rate worldwide is now dropping significantly. And if you were to wave a magic wand and give Aubrey de Grey his dream, namely indefinite life prolongation, um, well, the interesting side effect of that, we wouldn't be able to eliminate actual death. Um, just natural accidents and attrition would probably limit a human average life expectancy to six or seven hundred years but uh, our population wouldn't peak much higher than nine ten billion even if we had immortality at this point it's just the peak would be sustained for longer
0: okay uh, let me close our interview uh, here with the, the traditional three questions that i i ask of all my uh, interviewees and that is first of all um Would you like to share with us what are you working on at the moment or any future plans for the next couple of years?
1: That's fairly easy. Um, I'm actually talking quite freely about the books I'm currently under contract for. Right now, I'm working with Cory Doctorow on The Rapture of the Nerds, which is a humorous look at... um, a post-singularity world from the point of view of a curmudgeonly green who spends a lot of his time screaming and running away from high-tech manifestations things like bicycles. Um, I am also working to get the fourth novel in my laundry sequence finished which is due to be handed in later this year for publication next year. That's, um, if you like, the Lovecraftian horror singularity. Um, the book that's coming out next, in fact next month, Rule 34, is is—it's um, a near future novel, it's set in the same universe as Halting State, it focuses on the future of crime and criminology from the point of view of a detective trying to solve a very, very peculiar crime. Um, it's near future, and I probably shouldn't spoiler it too much, but I should say that the phrase "panopticon singularity is used in it. Think in terms of a singularity with ubiquitous law enforcement. Um, I believe Verna Vinci has had something to say on this in the past. I decided to take a look at it up close and personal. Very interesting. And uh, going beyond that, um, I have a, few, a couple of novels under contract, but I haven't started work on yet, including a space opera and a third near-future novel.
0: Very interesting. So uh, what is the best place for one to go and find information both about you and about the the work that you're doing and that you have upcoming?
1: The first place to look is on my website and blog, which is www.accelerando.org. That's far and away the easiest entry point.
0: Yes, yes, and it's just like the book, too which was my the first work of you that, that I, I read. Um, and finally, if you had one message, one message that you wanted our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview today, what would you like it to be?
1: If anyone ever gives you a narrative about the future of the human condition or the world we live in, that purports to explain everything, and it's simple, elegant, and appealing, and internally consistent. It's almost certainly wrong. The real world is complicated.
0: And uh, with this uh, answer, I'd like to thank Charles Stross for taking time to be here with us today. Thank you, Charlie.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It was my pleasure entirely. Thanks again.